Elizabeth Elliot was a famous missionary in her own light and an extremely successful author, authoring over 25 books. But she was probably best known as the wife of Jim Elliot. They were the perfect couple. The reverberating theme of their lives was a boundless love for Jesus. And that love was costly. It led them to the Amazonian jungle of Ecuador where Jim Elliot was one of five young missionaries who were killed in 1956 while attempting to make contact with the members of the Alca Indians. Elizabeth Elliot found herself in that moment in the middle of a crisis. You see, her husband was gone and her daughter was only 10 months old at the time. But God had a plan for Elizabeth's life. He would actually lead her back to Ecuador. Now, no one, no one would have questioned had she never returned there ever again. But Elizabeth, along with her daughter, Valerie, who was now three, would return to the Alca territory to live among and minister to those very people who were responsible for killing her husband. She would help lead numerous members of the Alka tribe to Christ. Sometimes God calls us to a mission while we're in the middle of a crisis. This was the case for the Bible hero we're studying today. I'm talking about Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah working as the cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes. He's living in exile, but as far as jobs go for people living in exile, he's got a pretty sweet situation. You see, the Jewish nation of Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians, and the people had been living in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and they allowed the captive Jews to return to Jerusalem if they wanted to. By the time Nehemiah is living, a portion of the Jewish people had been back in their homeland for about a century. Ezra the priest had already spearheaded the rebuilding of the temple in 515 B.C. But now it's 70 years later. Nehemiah was one of the Jews who stayed in Babylon where he held this very important job as a cupbearer for the king. Now, a cupbearer was the guy who tasted the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. This meant he was a trusted member of the king's inner circle. Nehemiah had adapted to life in exile pretty well. But to be honest, it probably wasn't that hard because this is a really great job that he has. But one day, something happened that turned his world upside down. One day he gets a visit from his brother. Nehemiah writes this. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Although the Jews had rebuilt the temple in 515 B.C., the walls remained in shambles now for 70 years. And a city's walls represented its power. 
and its protection and even its beauty. And now Nehemiah's brother said the people of Jerusalem are in great trouble and disgrace. They were in trouble because there's nothing to protect them without a wall. And they were in disgrace because without a wall, at any time, their enemies could just waltz in and make them a national embarrassment. This was the problem. The once great city of Jerusalem was totally defenseless. The problem was a huge one too, and it seemed to have no real solutions. The nation of Judah had failed to finish the restoration of their city. Nehemiah was living well in a foreign land while his own people were back home suffering. This was heartbreaking news to Nehemiah, and he took it personally. Look what he says happened. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The news hit Nehemiah so hard that it brought him to tears. He took all of this very personally. When something resonates with you so deeply, it can actually move you. And this was his country, and it was moving him. It would be like us seeing the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. having been destroyed or seeing the Washington Monument toppled. For us, that would be devastating. So Nehemiah mourned for several days, and then he said he started to fast and pray. He was fasting and praying to God. Now, most people are familiar with prayer, which is defined simply as talking with God. But many people don't know much about fasting, and fewer even practice it. Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, defines fasting as abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. In the Bible, normal means of fasting usually involved abstaining from all forms of food, both solid or liquid, but not abstaining from water. And in most cases, fasting is a private matter between one individual and God. But there are occasions where there were public fasts in Scripture. And Nehemiah is in the middle of a national crisis. He sees his nation not where it should be. And it brings him to a place of mourning and fasting and praying. Over the course of the last three, three and a half weeks, we've been in a national crisis. We've seen our city and our nation going through growing pains, following the killing of a man most of us have never met, a man by the name of George Floyd. So we as a church are planning a day to fast and pray. We're going to fast and pray on June 19th, also known as Juneteenth. June 19th is a holiday commemorating the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was officially implemented for the entire nation. This is a very important day for all Americans. And I thought it was a perfect day to pray for healing and unity among the races. I want to ask you to join me in fasting and praying on June 19th and asking God to heal our nation. I've been praying to enlist 50 
of us from Northeast. Now, I know that's a a lot of folks, but I want to enlist 50 of us to fast and to pray, to seek God during this time for one day, June 19th. I would love for you to join me. It's very easy to join. All you have to do is go to nccleax.info and click on the Day of Prayer and Fasting button and just fill out the information there. Be a part of the 50 who are going to spend the day before God to help heal our nation. And let me remind you what James says about this. He says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We can change the way this world is when we fast and when we pray. So let's do that. Let's fast and pray together. Nehemiah then records for us his prayer. And part of it, he says in verse 6 and 7, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah demonstrated that before we can fix the problems we face, we need to get things right between us and God. So he confesses his sins, and then he confesses the sins of his nation. God says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen a promise. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Boy, we could certainly use that today. Then in a few months, a few months have passed and the day arrives when Nehemiah is going to do more than just pray. He takes a step. In the second chapter, verses one and two, we read, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? When the king noticed that Nehemiah was sad, it terrified him because the king could actually execute anyone who displeased him. If you walked into his presence and bummed him out, it could be the end of your life. In fact, people who were wearing sackcloth, which was a which is what people wore when they were humbling themselves with like burlap or, or gunny sack. When people wore sackcloth, they were restricted from entering the palace because they didn't want anyone like that to be seen by the king. And what we see next in the story is a key point in this entire narrative. That is this. God can reveal a mission in a crisis God can actually give you a cause, a purpose, a mission, even in the midst of your crisis. Just like Elizabeth Elliot, he gives Nehemiah a mission. Nehemiah must have been thinking and strategizing over the last few months, and now he decides to go for it. 
He's going to step out on faith. He decides to explain the situation to the king and just see what happens. So this is what it says. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah does it again. He turns to God in prayer. He probably just prayed silently while he's standing there in the presence of King Artaxerxes. And he gives one of those, please help me God kind of prayers. You know, we just fire it off real quick. And then he continues. He says, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, Let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Through Nehemiah's journey, there are several insights from this crisis that he's in that the mission in Jerusalem revealed to us. And the first insight that we see is prayer works. It works. Nehemiah made this huge request of his boss, the king. And look what happened. The king was so happy to help him. Nehemiah prayed and things started happening. He continues in verse 70, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, The king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. Which brings us to insight number two. God will open a door of opportunity. Not only did the king agree to allow Nehemiah to make the three-month trip to Jerusalem and then spend whatever time needed to rebuild the city. But he also agreed to support the entire mission. I remember the story a long time ago of a godly woman, an older woman, who was very poor. And she was known in the neighborhood to sit on her front porch and rock in her rocker and just pray out loud to God. And this drove her atheist neighbor crazy. One day when, after the woman had prayed, asking God for food because she had none in the house, this neighbor decided he was going to teach the old woman a lesson. So he bought some groceries and he set them on the old woman's porch and then he rang the doorbell and he ran and hid in her bushes. And when she answered, she immediately threw her arms up in the air as she saw the groceries and she started praising God. Thank you, Lord, for providing for my needs. Thank you for providing for my needs. And then all of a sudden, out of the bushes, jumps the neighbor and says, Aha, God didn't provide that for you. I bought those groceries. To which the old woman responded, And Lord, praise you for getting the devil to pay for it. Well, it's not quite that dramatic with Nehemiah, but it is kind of ironic, isn't it? 
that God is sending him back to build, rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. And he gets the Persian king to provide letters for a safe passage and documents to get timber to make beams for the gates and to help build the walls and to build a place for Nehemiah to live. And then the king also sends along a protective detail to guarantee Nehemiah's safety. Never forget, insight number three, God always pays for the things he orders. And he has provided just exactly what Nehemiah has needed for this mission. Well, Nehemiah makes a trip to Jerusalem. And we read, he says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah was on a mission from God, but no one knows about it yet. Inspecting the city walls at night allowed him to keep his secret a secret. And I think he's kept it quiet because he wanted to see things for himself before he makes his strategy known to others. But also I think God was probably still in the process of shaping the vision of rebuilding the city wall. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. You know, you can imagine what these guys are going through when they can't find Nehemiah. You see, when an important guest like the king's cupbearer disappears, it causes local leaders to get a little nervous. And they start to ask questions. So Nehemiah finally explains why he's here. He says in verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble? And pay attention to that word, trouble. You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Remember that word, too. Remember when Nehemiah's brother came and said to him in Babylon, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace? Nehemiah finally had seen what they were referring to. He saw how unsafe and vulnerable the city was and the great trouble that caused. And even though it was dark, he was able to see the embarrassing state of things and the disgrace that that brought on the people. So he proposes that they rebuild the walls and the gates. Insight number four, you will never accomplish your vision unless you start. I think it's a lot easier to plan things than it is to perform them, to put them into action. And I know that most marketing strategists wouldn't, wouldn't have recommended the timing of Nehemiah's rollout for this big plan. Because in the middle of the night, Nehemiah starts to cast the vision to rebuild the wall. And then he tells them what God had already done to make this possible. In verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Imagine being Nehemiah in that moment and realizing God has his hand on me. 
He explains all the doors that God had opened to get him this far. And it strengthens the faith of the city leaders in such a way that they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work, Nehemiah writes. They're off and running. But barely, the ink is barely dried on the plans to rebuild the walls when Nehemiah writes this. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Which brings us to insight number five. When you obey God, you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble in this world if you're doing the bidding of God. Whenever you step out in faith to follow God's calling, you're always going to face opposition. Maybe not at all, all the time, but you will face it at some time because the enemies of God will always try to thwart the missions of God. But do you remember the words of Job from last week's message? In Job 42, 2, he says, I know that you can do all things. He's talking to God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I believe Nehemiah knew that. Listen to his response. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Just let that sink in for a moment. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah knew that if this thing was going to be a success, if it was going to happen, God would be the main reason. He knew that God would make it successful. Which brings us to insight number five. Put your confidence in God for results. So, in Nehemiah 4, we see the enemies of Nehemiah, the enemies of this rebuilding project, begin to ramp up their hostilities, their antagonistic acts toward the workers in Nehemiah. Verse 1, it says, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Insight number seven, expect critics to criticize. If you don't think that your critics aren't going to lob a few uh, you know, criticisms at you, you have another thing coming. Because they will. And you should expect that. Just prepare for it. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah says, till all of it reached half, half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. They responded to the criticism by working extremely hard. Nehemiah says they put their heart into it, and the result was the wall was halfway done. But the enemies didn't stop. Then we read that the critics... The enemies plotted to make real trouble for the workers. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And you know, Nehemiah and the workers could have panicked at this point, but they didn't. 
Verse 9, Nehemiah says, but we prayed to our God. There it is again. And it's not just Nehemiah now praying. It's Nehemiah and all the workers are praying. He has, he has led them, discipled them to say, hey, when the crisis is on us, let's turn to God and ask for his intervention. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Nehemiah had developed a routine where he prays first and then he takes action. It's a simple formula. Pray, then do what you can, then trust God for the rest. But the work was hard. And hard work was beginning to take a toll. And the threats didn't let up. And that seemed to be taking a toll on the workers as well. And we read in Nehemiah 4, verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. The people are getting tired, and the project is beginning to lose momentum. Things seem to go from bad to worse. In verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there on, among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who live near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. The enemies continue their threats. They just continue and continue to threaten them, to try to stir up fear in the workers. And the locals are panicking, saying, the enemies are... He's everywhere. They are seeing shadows where there are no shadows. The opposition during a crisis can be much more intense because you were already facing challenges of the crisis. And we will see things go from this situation to an even worse situation. In chapter 5, the people living in Jerusalem were also dealing with serious poverty. And Nehemiah had to address that. And then in chapter 6, we learn that Nehemiah's enemies have now taken out a hit on him to have him killed. Nehemiah and his builders, they face numerous challenges. It would have been easy for them to just toss the trowel in and quit. This is where we get insight number 8. Adapt when necessary. Nehemiah recognized that they needed to make some adjustments. They needed to change the plan up a little bit or the people would have given in to fear. So here's what he did. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, listen to this encouragement. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Then our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half my men did work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in their other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. 
Nehemiah and the workers were prepared for battle, but it didn't stop them from working. So they continued to work, and you know what? The battle they prepared for, it never came. And then in Nehemiah, the sixth chapter, verse 15 and 16, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Several months earlier, God had gotten Nehemiah's attention. His brother shows up, they have a conversation, and all of a sudden, God sets this whole thing into motion. And before long, he is supervising the reconstruction of the wall around Jerusalem. And now, what seemed like it was almost impossible to most, it's completed. And on top of that, the enemies of Judah are afraid because they know that God was the one who built this wall. That's what God does. He always finishes what he starts. So what has he started in you? That's Nehemiah's amazing story. I've been wondering what God has been teaching you during this time of crisis. And I want to share with you two things that I've learned as I close out this series today. What I've learned in the crisis is first found in James 1, 19 and 20. James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The first thing that I've learned is to listen well. Be slow to speak, slow to tweet, slow to post, slow to become angry. And the second thing that I've learned comes from Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The thing I learned from Galatians 5.13 is to love others through service. Oh, I can say that I love someone, or I can post that I love someone, but it's really kind of a cheap way of expressing my love. You know, my grandmother used to say, actions speak louder than words. And I think that's true. When we serve someone because of unconditional love, we send a message to them that they truly matter to us. So I've learned to listen well, talk less, try not to get angry, and then serve people. It's promoted or prompted by my love for them. We should love others. So look for ways to serve those in our community. Would you pray with me as we close this series? God, we are living in a time when people all across our land are hurting. 
There are others that are in fear. There are a variety of emotions that are populating the landscape. We live at a time when there are many who are tearing things down. Others are saying hateful things in the name of change. Others are praying that change will come in a holy way. This is a time, God, for the church to fast and pray. And I pray, God, for 50 who will join me in interceding before you on behalf of our nation and our city. It's time for the church to listen well. It's time for the church to love others. It's time for the church to serve our neighbor. And I know, God, we do this, but it's desperately needed today. So will you help us to build not a wall like Nehemiah built, but a bridge, a bridge to unify our city? We may not be able to change the national dialogue, but what if we change the dialogue with three or four people in our neighborhood? Give us words of peace, God. Words of kindness and grace, words of love. Help us, God, to be the church who is part of the solution the church that heals, the church that is your hands and feet. We ask this, God, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in with us today. Be sure you're staying connected by following NCC Lex on all social media platforms. Also, if you'd like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Drop us a message on social or just shoot an email over to notes to at nccleks.org. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.